Welcome to Worldly, Vox's guide to the most important stories in the world, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. We had a plan for today. We were going to talk about the historic summit President Trump was supposed to have on June 12th with Kim Jong-un. Then literally, as we were about to record this, Trump suddenly canceled it. And he did it with some of the most Trumpian language possible. This is from the letter he sent Kim Jong-un. You talk about your nuclear capabilities, but ours are so massive and powerful that I pray to God they will never have to be used. So we'll get into what the cancellation means and why it happened. But let's start with that letter. Jen, before we went on, you were saying that in a strange way, it kind of sounds like a breakup letter. Absolutely. It sounds like the best and weirdest breakup letter. It it starts out with, you know, dear Mr. Chairman, it's addressed to His Excellency Kim Jong-un. He says, we greatly appreciate your time, patience, and effort with respect to our recent negotiations. And he goes on to say, you know, uh, sadly, based on the tremendous anger and open hostility displayed in your most recent statement, I feel it is inappropriate at this time to have this long planned meeting. And then it just gets more and more bizarre from there. So at the end, he says, if you change your mind having to do with this most important summit, please do not hesitate to call or write. Like, yeah, you know, just text me back if you forgive me, if we get over this. It's just this bizarre, like, it's not me, it's you. Okay, it's actually you kind of breakup letter. It's very bizarre. How did we get here? Well, as Trump says in the letter, he felt a, again, this is a direct quote, he felt a wonderful dialogue was building up between you and me, which is just adorable, um, but also speaks to the way in which Trump conceptualizes this and has for a while as a personal accomplishment of his. He, when he accepted this meeting, it was a culmination of his personal campaign of pressure to North Korea that would then lead to a deal that he would make on his own. And it was a tremendous and significant accomplishment personally in Trump's eyes. But then it became clear the difficulty that would come into a summit like this. And in the past few weeks— A series of mismatched expectations undercut Trump's personal investment. But what's interesting to me, if we kind of rewind the tape a little bit, is this has been building, you know, Zach, you're making that point for weeks. So let's go back to late April. John Bolton, the national security advisor who is very hawkish on North Korea, is on Fox News. And Chris Wallace asked, Will President Trump insist that Kim give up, ship out all of his nuclear weapons, all of his nuclear fuel, all of his ballistic missiles before the U.S. makes any concessions. Yeah, I think that's what denuclearization means. And we have very much in mind the Libya model from 2003, 2004. The Libya model. Yeah, that's really vitally important to all of this because it really set off North Korea after he said that. The reason why is that in 2003, the U.S. struck a deal with then-Libyan dictator Muammar Gaddafi to end his what was pretty nascent nuclear program. You know, it wasn't like North Korea, really. It was just at the very beginnings. But he got rid of the program, and then eight years later, the United States intervened in the Libyan civil war against Gaddafi, toppled him, and there's now video of him being killed and tortured by rebels who captured him. And dictators around the world got the message, right? You give up your nuclear weapons, the United States is free to invade you at a later date if they're mad about what you're doing to your own people. And so in the U.S. as the Libya model, in North Korea's mind, that means give us your nuclear weapons and then one day we might attack you, literally. And the whole point of their weapons program is to deter an American attack. When John Bolton starts using that as an example, it started to poison the well of diplomacy. The North Koreans started to wonder if the Americans were serious about anything on their terms. And there was that amazing quote from the North Koreans about John Bolton, where they say, after he talked about the Libya model, and they said, we can't hide our feelings of repugnance about Bolton. So again, you have late April, Bolton says this, 
North Koreans criticize him. Then you have Trump kind of soften a little bit. But then yesterday, Pence went on Fox News, and then he said this. This will only end like the Libyan model ended if Kim Jong-un doesn't make a deal. So that's, Zach, that's not really a, a subtle threat. I mean, that, there he's sort of uh, implicitly, but in a way that'd be very clear to North Koreans, not just saying, hey, give up your nuclear weapons in this way, but basically saying, or Kim Jong-un, you may get dragged through the streets, tortured, and killed. Right. Pence's framing took what was an implicit threat, that if things don't go well, the United States might resort to something, you know, a little more drastic than negotiating, and he made it explicit, right? That was basically him saying, denuclearize or else. And from North Korea's point of view, that is no way to enter a negotiation. They're not going to do this. And in fact, the entire point from their point of view is not doing it as uh, from a position of weakness, of being like, please, America, we'll do whatever you want. Don't hit us. It's a way of coming in and saying, we are equals. We are negotiating as nuclear powers together. You make one concession, we make another concession. And generally speaking, North Korea gets a, a lot of recognition out of that, a sense of status that they didn't have before as a member of the international community. But if they're doing it you know, under threat of invasion, the entire framework of the conversation shifts. And the Koreans reacted really negatively to Pence's comments. They called it stupid and threatened, what was what was the exact phrase, a nuclear... Well, so they were talking about how um, he was a political dummy and how the comments were ignorant and stupid. And they say, basically, you could either sit with us at the negotiating table or we can go back to a nuclear-to-nuclear showdown. That's right. So they went really quickly from zero to 60, from like Pence is a moron to, hey, nuclear war. Right. I mean, I don't want to put this all on the Trump administration, though. It's not like North Korea had been totally passive and, and totally going along with everything the last couple of weeks, right? They also started pulling back on what they were willing to do, what they were saying. They started being threatening again, saying we will cancel the summit if you guys, you know, that statement on the nuclear to nuclear showdown, that statement actually said it is up to the U.S. It is U.S. behavior. U.S. actions will determine whether we sit down at the summit or not, or whether it comes to a nuclear to nuclear showdowns. And we've written about this on the site and, and talked about it elsewhere that North Korea, we're talking about what happened. Why did they suddenly like get skittish and maybe start walking back from the table? So it's not like Pence or even, you know, Bolton. Like it's been kind of back and forth. Bolton says one thing, North Korea gets skittish. Uh, you know, Kim Jong-un goes to China. According to Trump, that's where something changed. I don't know if that's true or not. But again, I don't think it's just on the Trump administration. Oh, so right? I, I do want to blame it all on the Trump administration. I am um, not surprised yeah, by that. I do. Fact. I do. Uh, and the reason why is that it was obvious from the beginning that North Korea was going to respond in this way. Like all of the things that you just outlined, Jen, in terms of North Korea statements are true. I know. But every single one of them was in reaction to something the Trump administration did. The way that it approached the entire negotiations was North Korea will give up its nuclear weapons and then we will talk. So the problem here from the outset, according to people who look at the Korean Peninsula, uh, was a different set of expectations between the American and North Korean sides. When the U.S. says denuclearization on the Korean Peninsula, what it means is that North Korea gives up its nuclear weapons and then maybe afterwards they will get some kind of concession from the United States as a consequence. You know, relax sanctions, diplomatic recognition, something like that. Who knows what Trump was thinking? The North Koreans by contrast, had different goals for this summit. They may have, at one point, been able to agree to some kind of partial 
dismantling of its nuclear program, maybe a, a freeze on a permanent freeze on nuclear testing and missile testing and so on in exchange for relaxation of sanctions. But when they say denuclearization, they don't mean they just give up all their weapons and they hope America does something nice for them. What they mean is a very long-term kind of project in which North Korea gives up its nuclear weapons and the United States withdraws from the Korean Peninsula entirely. It ends its alliance with South Korea. It pulls out its troops. Basically, there is no more threat of American nuclear use. Right. So denuclearization for them means us and you too, right? You also have to stop threatening us with nuclear weapons. For America, we mean, no, just you. Just you have to denuclearize. But but I I think it is really important, though, to pause for one second on this because denuclearization in the North Korean context almost certainly does not mean for them ever giving up their nuclear weapons. And like the fundamental dispute when you really boil it down is the U.S. says give them up and give them up fast or immediately. North Korea, as you know, Zach, I agree, to them it's a very long process. But at the very end of that process, there's no reason to think that they would give it up even when that process ends. I think, you know, your point is is right that for them it's long term. They want to see the U.S. alliance with South Korea break which means not only are they not threatened by invasion, but also theoretically, if they invade the South, there's nothing really stopping them. But even on the kind of core question of what happens to their nuclear weapons, there's no signal there either. Yeah, because the uh, the U.S. withdrawal and the end to the U.S. alliance with South Korea was so off the table, so non-thinkable, that it was never even seriously discussed in the run-up to these negotiations. And without that kind of like really radical shift in America's policy, that is to say an end to U.S. involvement on the Korean Peninsula, there was no way in hell North Korea was going to give up their nuclear weapons. And this was obvious to everybody who watches this issue. And I can't stress this enough. There was no serious analyst who thought that North Korea would give up its weapons under the terms that Trump wanted them to when these negotiations began. But the Trump administration never wavered from this line that denuclearization means they give up their weapons and then maybe later we'll do something nice for them. And that was crazy, right? And the entire conversation about this was taking place under this pall of the Trump administration's misunderstanding of North Korea. And everything that has happened that led to this cancellation has flowed from this fundamental misunderstanding of the state of play. Vox just launched a new show on Netflix. It's called Explained, and you can find it on Netflix right now. It's for people like you, people who are curious about the world around them. And here's our promise. If you give us 15 minutes of your time, or sometimes 20, sometimes we can stick to the 15-minute limit. So 15 to 20 minutes of your time will take you from being just curious about a big, important topic to actually understanding it. Our first few episodes explore things like... Why is monogamy so important around the world? What happens when we can actually edit our DNA and take control of our own evolution? Why is the racial wealth gap in America still growing? You'll see it's Vox to its core. It's a bigger and more ambitious, yes, but still looking and feeling and sounding like us. And we'll hopefully give you the context and reporting and research that actually makes these super, super satisfying, I think the most satisfying videos we've ever made. So go to Netflix and check it out. You can search for it, you can search for Vox, or you can just go to netflix.com slash explained. Hello, listeners of Worldly. This is Casey Newton, Silicon Valley editor of The Verge. You know one way you could become even more worldly? By listening to my new podcast, Converge. Each week, we'll bring you fresh ideas and a sense of what it's like to build a company from the people who are actually doing it. 
and we'll do it all with games that no one has ever played. It's like HQ trivia if there was only one contestant and it was literally impossible to win money. So far, we've got guests lined up from Google, Lyft, Pocket, and that bodega near your house. You know, the one with the weird cat? The first episode drops Wednesday, May 23rd, wherever you get your podcasts. Converge, you've never heard a tech show like this. Genuine question. If the entire thing is that Kim Jong-un is never going to give up his weapons ever, 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 right? Maybe the Trump administration, or especially Trump himself, might not have fully understood that that we were talking at cross-purposes, right? But Kim Jong-un sure as shit understood what the state of play was, right? And there are plenty of people in the administration who do understand that, I would imagine. So that kind of raises the question, right? Like, so why would Kim, because he was telling the South Koreans and the Chinese that he was willing to sit down and talk denuclearization, right? So he's willing to play the game. He's willing to sit down. So all of a sudden, the question is, why is he backing out just because Bolton says this, if he already knows this? Do you have a theory, Jen? Uh, I do, sort of. I mean, part of it, I think, is definitely just wanting that recognition, right? The fact that the president of the United States wrote a letter, like, literally addressed, like, to his excellency, Kim Jong-un, dear Mr. Chairman, like, one-on-one, you've never seen that kind of level of recognition from a U.S. president in weirdly warm terms talking about the North Korean leader, right? So that recognition of, yeah, like, we're here, we will come to the table, you will deal with us one-on-one, like a serious nuclear power. I think that's a huge part of it. But, I mean, I do also think that potentially that Kim, we've talked about this on past episodes, uh, maybe was a little rattled by some of the saber rattling that was going on and was like, all right, look, you know, maybe I can stall for time. Right? I can I could say that we're going to have these talks. We can figure this out and, and see what happens. And I think that's why we're kind of back to this uncertainty now. Like, okay, the summit's off. So now what? I mean, I feel like uh, to, your, to your theory, which I agree with a lot of it, Kim, you could argue, already won a lot and had the summit gone forward and had he actually had the video and the photos of him shaking hands with an American president, then he would have really won. But if you think about like North Korea, and again, with all things North Korea, we should always caveat with a shaker of salt of, who the hell knows, on some, to some level. Like, he doesn't do interviews. It's not like we have, like, this deep understanding of what is basically a black box. But to the degree that smart people look at this, they say he wants a couple of things, right? He wants recognition as, like, a world leader. He wants his country recognized as a world power. He wants money and help from other parts of the world. And he wants to know the U.S. will not try to topple his government. And on all those things, you saw Trump, in the run-up to this cancellation, say, we think your country can be really rich and really wonderful and we'll help you go there. We do not want to topple your government. Your government is legitimate. So he already kind of got a lot from the U.S. But those were not things that in that way previous U.S. presidents had said. They sort of danced around it. Like they hadn't called for regime change because that would be terrifying. But they also hadn't said, hey, we can make your country really, really rich. Well, hell, I mean, you even had someone on Fox News the other day literally saying, I don't think that Kim Jong-un enjoys murdering his people, right? I think maybe he doesn't like it and he wants to come out of the— you know, come out of the dark and, and come into the fold. And, you know, people, it was roundly criticized. Like, dude, he's literally like a murderous dictator. Like, we get that you guys are super interested in maybe having this deal happen, and we get that. But, like, let's not whitewash the fact that he's literally a brutal dictator who, you know, actually tortured and imprisoned Americans and thousands of his own people are still in in gulags right now in North Korea. So, right. So, I mean, that's how effective this kind of charm offensive had been, right? So. Even if he gets nothing out of it, 
at all in terms of an actual deal. Kim Jong-un still has people going, I don't think he's that bad of a guy. And that's kind of a big fucking deal. Yeah, I want to drill down on this idea of status because it's really important to understanding what's going on and it can all sound a little abstract and airy. International relations scholars have long recognized that a drive for status is a really important motivator for a lot of different countries. And by that, they mean two things. First, they mean concrete recognition by other countries in terms of things like trade ties, diplomacy, economic investment, and so on, right? And that's one kind of status. But another one is more ideological and relational. It's a sense that your country is being disrespected by other countries and that you want to be a member of the international community. You want other countries to say, yes, you're okay, or yes, you're one of us, or something like that. And that is a fundamental drive for leaders and for governments in the same way that a drive for prosperity or security from attack is, right? And North Korea, out of this process already, has gotten both parts of those conceptions of status, right? They've gotten deeper engagement with the rest of the world and the United States. They also can blame the failure of the summit on the United States, and say, look, we tried, but you know this Trump guy pulled out of the talks, and who knows what that could lead to in terms of improved investment opportunities from China or Russia or elsewhere. And, and more fundamentally, through this letter and all the things we've been talking about in this episode, they got that second kind of status. They got brought out of the cold of the, per, the complete pariah state that they were in prior to this and now have much more of the relational status that they didn't have beforehand just by virtue of these talks being scheduled. So I'm going to, I agree mostly, I'm going to push back a little bit. So, I mean, the entire kind of raison d'etre of the Kim regime and meaning not just Kim Jong-un, but his father and his his grandfather, Kim Jong-il and Kim Il-sung, has been, we are like the hermit king. And that goes back to earlier before North Korea was even North Korea, right? We are this, we have enemies on all sides who want to attack us, right? And I, Kim, I, the dear leader, the great leader, his excellency, I am your protector, right? Under my beneficent leadership, I will keep you, my Koreans, safe from these evil Americans, these Japanese imperialists, like all of these people. So it's not just like, he could easily be like, yeah, I want to come out of the cold and be on the international community. Like, stop building nukes. It's not that hard, right? It's it's a little bit more nuanced than that. It's more respect me because I have power. I demand respect. I deserve respect. Not I want to be in the cool club with you guys, right? It's a little bit more, I look, I have forced them to recognize what a strong power and they won't fuck with us anymore, right? But, and so I am I am now recognized as a powerful, serious leader who has to be dealt with with respect. Right. I mean, I think that status obviously matters for them, but we also shouldn't understate other parts of it nor overstate status because Kim Jong-un, in a weird way, like Trump, is transactional. He wants concrete things, as did his father, as did his grandfather. So status is one thing. You know, being photographed as an American president is one thing. But they have also wanted, in a very literal, tangible way, money, help with reactors, help with their power plants, relaxation of sanctions, and they haven't gotten any of that. So when you talk about what the U.S. may have lost, what Kim Jong-un may have already gotten, he did not get in a fundamental way what his country really needs, which is the sanctions the Trump administration put onto his country are ravaging. They're really, really hard sanctions, and they're staying in place. There's no reason to think that because the summit fell off, suddenly Europe is going to try to rush in and invest in, in North Korea. So there's a lot here that Trump is not getting, but there's also a lot here that Kim Jong-un is not getting. And I think kind of as we're looking ahead to what the fallout from this is, it's sort of that issue, that transactional issue where neither side really got what it wanted, that to me is sort of the biggest takeaway. 
I'm not sure I buy that. Uh, I don't know if Kim, I'm sure he would have loved to get relaxation from recently imposed UN sanctions. I don't think he ever expected to get that out of it. And again, at this point, we're- Well, except that his father had and his grandfather had. So like in the past, when they've talked seriously with the U.S., the U.S. had relaxed sanctions and had talked about giving them financial aid and had talked about building them reactors. So they've, in the past, come with asks that were specific and gotten them from the U.S. Right. Well, more accurately, they've gotten food aid and a very specific set of things, as you were saying, but not- wide-scale relaxation of the international sanctions regime, nor is there evidence in this specific case. In those other cases, there was a cycle of provocations. There was North Korea will do one thing provocative and then in exchange for walking down from whatever its latest threat is or whatever confrontation it had incited, it would agree, it would take some kind of limited concession. But in this case, there wasn't a, a a cycle of escalation pattern going on. There wasn't North Korea doing one thing and then demanding a specific concession like food aid for backing down. This was a broad scale negotiation about the big picture issues of North Korea's nuclear program. And it seemed to me, and again, to a lot of the observers I've talked to, that there wasn't the kind of specific ask that you had in the past, that this really was, and I guess maybe we just have a different vision of this, but it really, it really was a play for status and recognition primarily. And then anything else they can get on top of that was kind of gravy. And I feel like they've already gotten a good chunk of the status stuff they wanted. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I actually agree with both of you. <laughs> I think you both kind of have it. Uh, there's parts of that that are right on, on all sides. Um, there are many good people on both sides is what I'm trying to say here. Um, but I mean, it did just come out, I think, today that that Pompeo said that Kim had asked for specific things like specific U.S. investment in specific sectors in the North Korean economy. So there were economic asks going on. I think it, we need to be careful not to overstate what we know about what was being said behind the scenes and what wasn't, right? Like Pompeo and Kim have met now twice. They had long negotiations. We know just a tiny little barely bit of what happened because it's what Pompeo has told us, um, you know, and said publicly. But, you know, they met for hours. So who knows what asks were or weren't made? I want to be careful. You know, we don't know what went on there. Um, and I, I think it's also important just to note that, you know, North Korea had done what they would say is a pretty big concession just yesterday, right? It was just basically like this morning, essentially, for us. They invited foreign journalists, including some Americans, to come to this nuclear testing site and to watch it be demolished. It was this big kind of gesture, look, we're willing to do this thing. Now, there were you know issues over whether it's actually inoperable anymore because they didn't actually let any experts come in. They just let journalists come and watch an explosion, which isn't the same thing as having, you know, inspectors come in and go, yeah, this is actually like unusable now. But it was this big grand gesture that was meant to be this kind of, look, we will do this thing in good faith. They did release the American prisoners they were holding in North Korea. So they had done some tangible things to make it clear and to signal that they were willing to to come to the table, right? So I want to give them credit where credit's due, that they they were doing things to try to show in good faith. They were also having threatening rhetoric go out there at the same time. So so we close with what we know as of 11.09 a.m., which may change as of 11.15 or 11.30 or 4.30 or 5.30. Or 11.10 a.m. <laughs> uh, but come back to Today Explain, one of our sister podcasts, which will be discussing this also. There'll be a lot of good articles on Vox.com. And doubtlessly, this is something that will shake out over the days and weeks ahead. You can also check out the full text of the letter uh, that Trump wrote to Kim Jong-un uh, on Vox.com as well. So a thank you as always to our social media manager, Julie Bogan, to our amazing producer, Bird Pinkerton. If you like us, come find us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher. Subscribe, rate, review. We'll be with all of you again next week. Bye. Bye. <laughs>